Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our Parsha Perspectives for today. So good to be together again and to resume our learning of the Parsha with a focus on perspectives for today, what we can glean, how we can grow, how the Parsha can inform and inspire our lives. I want to thank our generous sponsors for our Parsha series. As always, Becky and Avi Katz and family in loving memory of David Grossman, Becky's father, Lila Nishmas, David, Ben, Menachem, Manash. I just want to remind everyone that our one-on-one campaign continues. One minute a day of Torah learning, one dollar a day of giving, an incredible program, Daily Giving, that we uh, cooperate or partner with, enables you to give a dollar a day and make a difference all over the world. In the minute a day of learning, we have a tremendous amount of people learning one minute a day, all for Esti Maskowitz, Esther Tila Basari Al-Tzipora, and all Holy Yisrael Shadav Eirifu Shlema. This week we have the privilege of learning Parshas Shoftim. You could sign up, brsonline.org slash one and one. That's where you can sign up for the campaign. Parsha Shoftim is in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 1024. 1024. Shoftim Moshe Rabbeinu is continuing his soliloquy. Moshe continues his monologue to the Jewish people. He continues to inspire them as they're about to cross the threshold into the land of Israel and realize their dream, their whole growth as a nation, their purpose in creation. And he continues to try to warn them and position them and inspire them that they should be mindful of the threats that loom, of the dangers that they could fall prey to, of how they can be sure to be focused on who they need to be. And tells them, We're not going to repeat, we've uh, spent a lot of time on this opening Pasuk in previous years. The Shlach Kadosh, Lecha, the word Lecha, what does it mean? Judges and officers place Lecha for you. The notion that Sharecha, the human being, we all have many openings and entrances into our body and through that into our mind and into our soul, our eyes, our nostrils, our mouth, our ears. Sharecha, we have many gates, we have many entranceways and we need both Shotim Veshotrim. We need judges, we need to show good judgment, clear judgment, unclouded judgment, prudent judgment. And as, or maybe more importantly, Shotrim, we need police officers. Meaning, you can have all the judgment in the world, Give it all the clarity in the world, you can have all of the correct perspective in the world, but if you lack the discipline, if you don't have the shotrim, if you're not disciplined in being able to show the self-control to be able to enact or to be able to express or manifest that good judgment, then what's it worth? Then what's it worth? The um, Chazal teach us, im ein shotrim, ein shoftim. Without police, without law enforcement, you can't have judges. You don't have good judgment spoke about last year what that means and we'll leave it we'll leave it there but I want to share with you a fascinating medrash the medrash says that we should have judges and police officers at all of our gateways and the medrash says about this go look at a lazy ant see its way its path how lazy it is how lazy it is and become wise be inspired so the Medrash says, this is what it means. The ant is lazy and lethargic and procrastinates and you, we should look at that and recoil and be inspired. To what? To be different. How should we be different? What does the Medrash tell us? Look at Lech on the Mala Atzel, according to the Pasuk in Mishlei, Ra'a see its ways, and what would you say? V'chacham means be smart, be wise, but that, that's, what would you say? Look at someone, something lazy, and how should you react? Don't be lazy, be. What's the opposite? Industrious, act with alacrity, zeal, enthusiasm, be energized, go pursue. What is v'chacham? Be wise. The opposite of laziness is not wisdom. The opposite of laziness is Action, activity, zeal, enthusiasm. So what does the Medrash, what does the Medrash mean? Revelio Lopiyah, the Leveliyo explains and answers the following. He says, Makor Ha'atlas, what is the source of laziness? Tipshus is ignorance and foolishness. Timtum Laziness is not, I mean, it could be, a person could go for a lab report and figure out why are they slow why are they lethargic? Why do they lack energy? Sometimes there can be a chemical issue. Sometimes a person needs some intervention medically. 
But generally speaking, says the Levaliyor of Eliopian that laziness stems from foolishness, from ignorance, from stupidity. You know where Arias, why does a person mistakenly pursue promiscuity? Why does a person look at the wrong thing? Why is a person drawn to the wrong thing? Why does a person behave in the wrong way or with the wrong action? Because of their heart, meaning that where does laziness come from? Laziness comes because we're not smart enough to say, that's a dumb way to live. What a waste of life, what a waste of time, what a waste of potential, what a waste of possibility. A person who's smart, who's wise, is a person who pursues with alacrity goals and aims and makes resolutions. So the, the lazy, lethargic, good-for-nothing, they know intellectually what will be in the end. But what happens? Their heart is closed. Their heart closes their eyes. They sleep the good sleep. They just want to take a nap. They just want to dremel. They just want to shluf. They don't want to think about the future. So therefore, says the Medrash, the opposite of laziness is wisdom. Be smart. The answer, the way to get somebody lazy to act is to say, be smart. Look at the potential. Look at the possibility of what you can accomplish. Look at the difference you can make. Look at the opportunity that you have. It's not that the opposite of laziness is zeal. What gets you to the mindset of zeal? What puts you in the position of Zrizos? Chachma. Chachma. If you're wise, wise up, be mature, be smart. Be smart. That's what will get a person, that's what will get a person going. So the parsha opens with this notion that all of us are shoftim v'shotrim. Lecha. We all use judgment. We've spoken about this a lot recently. That every time the Torah is giving this warning, this caution, these rules and regulations to judges, it's not only talking about technical judges who serve in courts formally, but it means every one of us. We all use judgment regularly. We all use our judgment. Use our judgment to judge favorably. Use our judgment to judge clearly. Use our judgment to judge fairly. Don't have clouded judgment. Don't have distorted judgment. Don't rush to judge unfavorably, and so on and so forth. Okay, moving along. Perak test, Zayim Pasuk, Chaf, Beis. Torah tells us, V'losita l'cha asherah kol eitz. Don't plant an idolatrous tree. Eitz l'mizbach Hashem l'kech asher t'asalach. Don't plant next to the altar. V'losakim l'cha matzeva asher sanei Hashem elokecha. Don't erect for yourself a matzeva that God despises and that God hates. What is this warning? Don't erect for yourself a matzeva. What does that mean? Rashi tells us, V'losakim l'cha matzeva. Rashi says, One solid piece of stone to offer on it even to heaven. Asher Sane, God hates that. In the days of the Avos, Hashem loved it. And now Hashem has come to hate it. Why? What's the difference? What happened? Because idolaters embraced it. And since idolaters embraced it, that's why Hashem now hates it. So we have to understand. So what? That the Umas Sa'ulam. So what that the nations of the world, that non-Jews, are doing this? They also have altars altogether. They offer sacrifices altogether. In fact, the Rambam in Mornavuchim says that the whole origin for sacrifices in the Jewish people is a response Non-Jews offer sacrifices. Jews are going to crave to go through the same or similar ritual. So God says, I'll appease you. You need something tangible. You need something physical. You need to slaughter. You need to smell. You need to burn. So I'll give you a base amikdash with an altar. So altogether we're doing a similar thing to the non-Jews by having a mezbeach. So how it's constructed, one piece, separate pieces, that's what Hashem cares about. That's what, he, that's what matters. Listen to this insight by Reb Moshe Feinstein. Reb Moshe has an incredible insight, Drash Moshe. He says the following, Drush. What is the difference between a Matseva and the Mizbeach? 
The Mizbeach was constructed by separate stones. You put them together, you piled them up, and you created an altar. What's a matzeva? Today we have a mahakamas matzeva. A person loses a loved one, Rachman al-Tzlan, and our custom, Neret Yisrael right away, here within the first year, we erect a monument. We have a kamas matzeva. Place a monument, a matzeva. Every, every um, unveiling that I officiate, I always begin by saying it's not an unveiling. We don't believe in unveilings. That's a non-Jewish concept. You get to the cemetery and they have a piece of cloth taped over it. The family gather rounds. Voila! Thousands of dollars later and family disputes what to say on it later and finally an agreement later and supply chain issues so it's longer than anyone ever thought later. Voila! Here it is. That's not what we believe. We don't believe in an unveiling. Jews don't have an unveiling. What do we have? A hakamas matzeva. Hakamas matzeva means the erecting, the installation of the monument. We are, we are marking, recognizing the fact that there's a monument. What's the difference between the monument and a mizbeach? What's the difference between a monument and a mizbeach? So Rav Moshe says the following. He says, Before Matan Torah, before we had a Torah, Hashem was satisfied if you did a few nice things and you stopped. If you were fixed in your way. If you said, you know what? I resolved to be a decent person, a good person, a moral person, a kind person, and I'm done. I'm pretty moral, I'm pretty good, and this is who I am, and this is what you get, and now I'm fixed like a matseva, like a matseva. Says of Moshe, the Torah gave us the tools. Teva gave us, Torah gives us the prescription. Torah gives us the formula, how to live the most meaningful, the best life. Grow, add on, make progress, improve, advance, always. Don't be stuck and don't be, don't be stable. Don't be complacent, but always advance and always grow and always add on more. So the image of a matzeva, says Moshe, is a monument. One piece of stone, still and stagnant, and one piece of stone. The image of a mizbeach, in contrast, is what? Stones piled on one another. You can continue to add more and more. He doesn't say this, but a matzeva is when you're dead. Person is gone. Person's life is over. It's done. It's finished. Hopefully they leave a beautiful and rich legacy. Hopefully the matzeva tells the story of the difference that they made. But they're done. They're no longer among the living. There's no more difference they can make. So it's a matseva. But a person shouldn't have a matseva while they're alive. If you have a matseva while you're alive, what, you're so done? You say, while I'm napping, put a matseva next to my bed. In my seat in shul, put a matseva next to my chair. Put a matseva. Matseva says you're fixed, you're done, you're finished. That's it. It's all you have to offer. It's all you're going to contribute. That's all you're going to live. Matseva's for after we're gone. Matzeva is for after we die. While we're alive, we have a mazbeach. We add stones. We grow. Lo sakim Don't establish for yourself. Don't worship God with the mentality. Don't worship God with the matzeva mentality. I went to yeshiva. He uh, spoke to somebody recently who tells me, I invited him to learn, to get involved. What could the shul do? We have so many learning programs. Our Arab Shabbos kol, our men's afternoon kol, our women's midrasha, advanced, beginner, intermediate. He says, I went to yeshiva. My yeshiva years are done. I'm done. I put in my time, killed myself, burned the midnight oil. I excelled. Ah, years ago, I'm done. Now, psh, I kill it in business, schmoozing back a shul during davening. I hit the kiddish, multiple kiddishes. My learning? Ah, I'm done. Person's living a matseva life. Put up the matseva. Which mesech does I learn? Put up the matseva. How much parsha I explored. Put up the matseva, which shiurim I went to. I'm done. I'm fixed. I'm finished. The way I understood it, what I learned, I'm done. So the Rebbe Shalom says, Hashem, Hashem hates that. He hates that. You're done. 21, 22 years, 23, whenever left yeshiva, you're done. You're finished. Hashem hates that. Don't lead a matseva life. Live a mizbeach life. Add and grow and build and expand and do more and more and more and more. That's what Hashem wants from us. Not a matseva while we're alive. He wants us to worship through a mizbeach that we build and we grow and we add and we do more and more and more. 
In fact, what do you call somebody who's an enormous scholar? What's the name for them in Yiddishkeit? We praise somebody. Someone's a huge what? Talmud Chacham. We don't say they're a huge Chacham. We don't say they're a brilliant scholar. What do we say? They're a huge Talmud Chacham. You know what makes them a great scholar? They're not a Matzeva, they're Mizbeach. If they're a Matzeva, they're not somebody we should admire. If they're a Matzeva, they're not somebody that we should learn from. If they're a Matzeva, they shouldn't be the Rosh Hashiva, the Rebbe, the Mashkiach, the Rishkailu. If they're a Matzeva, they're finished. So they're not a Chacham, they're a Talmud Chacham. A Talmud is a student. They continue to study and learn and grow and add up. Now I'll leave off one postscript to get it, Moshe doesn't say this either. But I say this at every Hakamas Matzeva. Every time we have an unveiling, which is really a Hakamas Matzeva. We launch, we recognize, we read the Matzeva. The person who's no longer here is captured, their legacy is communicated through that monument. But what do we do before we take leave of the cemetery? We have a custom, we have a minhag. We reach down and we find what? A stone, a pebble, and where do we put it? On top, you know why? They're gone. They're a monument. But we build the Mizbeach out of the monument. We say, I'm going to continue. I'm going to build. I'm going to add. They're, they may be done, but what they've invested in me, and what do we place the Afka stone? How do you say stone in Hebrew? Evan. Av ben Nechad. Father, parent, child, grandchild. Or a conjunction of Av and Ben. Evan is Av and Ben, or an acronym for Av ben Nechad. And Evan, a stone, is continuity. When we put a stone on top of the monument, we say the monument is their legacy, and they're gone. But I put a stone, I'm going to build higher. I'm going to add to it. I'm going to turn the monument into a Mizbeach, because I'm still alive. Their monument informs my Mizbeach life, and I'm going to continue to grow. So that's what says Rav Moshe, Lo sakim Don't worship Hashem as a Matzeva, Asher Sane Hashem Elokat. He hates that. He hates that. You're fixed, you're finished, you're done. 19, 20, 21, 22. That's your understanding of Yiddishkeit? It's an enormous tragedy in Klai Yisrael. There are people walking around, and that's it. They're done. Their understanding of the Parsha, the quality of their Amidah, their Shemona Esrei. Again, shameless plug for Siddur snippets. We're learning the Amidah now. We just began. You didn't miss much. All we did is Hashem's Fasai Tiftach. Like nine different snippets on it, but Hashem's Fasai Tiftach. There are people davening Shemona Esrei at 80 years old the same way they did when they were 8 years old. You could see because you could clock it. The length of their Amidah, their level of concentration, their comprehension of the words. There are people whose understanding of Parsha Shoftim is the same as 80 as it was at 8. Is there a greater tragedy? Hashem hates that. Grow up, mature. Literally grow up. <laughs> grow up. Be a Mizbech. Grow up. Don't be a fixed monument. Grow, most of us grow out. We don't grow up. We've got to stop growing out and start growing up. We'll be a lot healthier way to live. Perakid Zayn. Blemish sacrifice you can't breathe. Bring. You find somebody who is violating Hashem's will, who threatens to compromise and corrupt the people, worship idols. What do we do with such a person? These are the rules. Testimony is through two credible witnesses. We do not uh, carry out capital punishment with one witness, and so on. Pasuk Ches. Pasuk Ches, we're on page 10 26. If a wonder befalls you, if a matter of judgment is hidden from you, it's an issue, a question, a matter of judgment. And it's in any of the areas of Jewish law. There's an allusion here to all the areas of halacha. These four descriptions of possible questions that arise are describing the four areas or pillars of Jewish law. What should you do? Get up and go to the place that Hashem has designated. Where is that place? Last week we wrote in the weekly that 
You can find it online. HaKadosh Baruch Hu never reveals it. He wants us to be mevakshim. He wants us to hone our radar and calibrate our compass and be spiritual seekers and go find that place. So ki yipale, what is the word yipale? Yipale is a? A pele, a wonder. A wonder befalls you, you have a question. Something doesn't make sense. La mishpat, about justice. Something seems unjust. Something seems unfair. Something seems confusing, unclear. What should you do? Vekamta Alisa. get up and go. Rise to that place. And the Pasuk is speaking specifically, Go to the judges that you have in that day. And seek out their wisdom. Seek out their, their sagacious advice. Seek out what they think is just and correct. But there's a beautiful Chassam Sofer on this Pasuk. Rav Weinfeld Shlita quotes the Chassam Sofer, who says the following, Ki Something for you is a pella, a question. What should you do? What should you do? Now, what kind of a question? Sometimes there's a question which is not earth-shattering. It's a question which doesn't paralyze or debilitate. It's a question that doesn't rock your amuna. So, for example, I get those questions regularly. Rabbi, I found a milchig fork in my fleshig dishwasher. I have yet to see somebody who walks away from Yiddishkeit. I've yet to meet somebody whose amuna is rocked, whose faith is broken because of a fleshig fork in a milchig dishwasher. Fine. However, there are people who go through horrific pain, difficulty in life. Ki mishpat. where's the mishpat? Where's the fairness? Someone around me I love is suffering. Someone is sick, someone is lonely. Someone is, someone is suffering. Ki it's a pella. Hashem, it's a wonder. It's an absolute wonder and it feels and it seems so unjust. What should you do with that feeling and what should you do with that question? Does Yiddishkeit expect you to suppress it and bury it? Are we meant to deny it? Is it a failure of faith to be filled with that question? Should you say, well, Kaddish Baruch is perfect and omnipotent and infinite and all-knowing, so I have no questions. It's wonderful that they're suffering. It's wonderful that they're in treatment. It's wonderful they don't have children. It's wonderful they're single, they can't find their basher. It's wonderful they're homeless, because Hashem is amazing. And everything Hashem does is for our best. So I have no questions. Is that the way that we're meant to live? Says the Chassam Sofer, no. Ki la mishpat. If you're filled, something is a pella, a wonder, it's confusing, it's unclear, it makes no sense, it's painfully difficult. La mishpat, specifically when it comes to an issue of justice or fairness. Vekamta ve'alisa el hamakom. Get up and bring it to Hashem. Challenge Him. Ask Him. Protest to Him. Object to Him. Because that's how you grow. Don't use it as a pretext or an excuse to walk away from him. Don't use it as a cop-out to give up on him. But vekamta va'alisa el hamakom. Get up and bring it up and present it. And get closer to Hashem from it. Vekamta va'alisa el hamakom. We don't shy away from questions. Says the Chassam Sofer. Ki something's a pella. Vekamta va'alisa. Get up and raise that question. Raise that question. Such an important chasam sofer. Such an important insight on our pasuk. How many young people we know, not young people, people of all ages we know, who walked away from Yiddishkeit because when they asked questions, they were shunned, they were silenced, they were told, we don't ask that. They were quieted. And we live in a world where today, you know, if that were true in years past, where a Rebbe, a Mora, a teacher, didn't want to be challenged, didn't want to answer a question, they couldn't, didn't know the answer to, didn't want to validate or acknowledge something was questionable. So they, they quieted. And they even shunned or shamed the person who was asking. And there are people who walked away from Yiddishkeit. They walked away. Because first of all, they were embarrassed or they were shamed for having the question or they were simply dissatisfied because they never got an answer or they never at least felt validated that it was a legitimate question. Allah has come of a come all the more so today. Any young person who has a question doesn't need to go to an adult or an authority, what do they do? They just need a keyboard. They just need a connection to the internet. And they have terabytes of information at their fingertips. So if Google or Siri will answer your question, but your Rebbe or your Mora or your parent won't, then what's gonna be the source of your truth? So it's so important to communicate to our children, ki mimcha davar la mishpat, 
the Kamta Va'alis. Whatever question you have, bring it. I don't know that I'll have the answer. I don't know that it'll be so compelling. I might be filled with the same question, but we're going to search and look together. We don't discourage and we don't silence and we don't shame for having a question. That's not our religion. That's not our religion. That's not who we are and what we believe. There's a great rabbi in Yerushalayim. He spoke here many, many years ago. He gives tours at Yad Vashem. And he's a convert. And his name is escaping me at the moment. Anyone know who I'm talking about? What's his name? Rabbi? So-and-so. Rabbi Asher Wade. I knew that I crowdsourced that, that I'd get some help. Rabbi Asher Wade. So Rabbi Asher Wade tells the story. When he was rising in the church, not only as a low-level priest, but he was rising up and studying more, he was filled with questions. And he brought those questions, I don't remember, archbishop, whatever level, superior person above him, expecting to get the answers. And he asked all of his questions on scripture, and the person superior to him turned and said, you know, I have those same questions. He felt, wow, that's wonderful, great, I'm going to get answers. And he said, no. He didn't say no yet because he wasn't Jewish. <laughs> but he said whatever the equivalent of no was before he converted. And the superior turned to him and said, yes, when I have those questions, I get on my hands and knees and I pray that they go away. And then he began to explore Judaism who said, questions, fantastic. We love questions. Pesach night, we have four questions at the Seder. And the base Medrash is filled with questions. And in the Hebrew language, there are six, seven, eight synonyms for questions. We have an incredible number of synonyms for questions, Rav Weinfeld points out. Very few words for answer. Because we're filled with questions. We have many ways to describe our questions. We welcome questions. We want questions. We want curiosity and inquisitiveness. We want people who are engaged and who are searching and who are looking. We love, love, love questions. We love questions. And so, when a question rises, when a question rises, it feels unjust. I'm confused. It's unclear. It feels unfair. Get up and bring that question up. Raise the question. Raise the question. You may not get a perfect answer. You may not get a satisfying answer. But don't be afraid to raise the question. We are a people of questions. We encourage and we promote questions. We welcome and we encourage and we should reward our children for asking the questions. There was a Nobel Prize winner, Isidore, my mind is a little uh, slow, not operating on a lot of sleep, I forgot his name. I wasn't planning on saying any of this, that's why I didn't prepare and don't know. These are just the things that come to me, for better or for worse. So uh, he was once interviewed in the New York Times, it's obituary, tells the story, how he became a Nobel Prize winner, what differentiated him, what made him better. He was a Jewish man, so he said, when he was a child, when he was a child, all the other kids would come home that day and the mother, the parents would ask, did you answer a good question today? What did you get on your task? Did you raise your hand? Did you answer a question of the teacher today? And his mother would ask, did you ask a good question today? Did you ask a good question today? And he credited becoming a Nobel Prize winner, his curiosity, his inquisitiveness, his search for wisdom, his discovery, he credited it all with the fact that his parents didn't say, did you answer a question today? But did you ask a good question today? Did you ask a good question? You're curious. We don't discourage. We reward. We don't shame. We elevate. The Kamta Alisa. Get up and raise that question and pursue it and use it to get close to Hashem. To get closer to Hashem. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of questions. We believe in Hashem. There are chukim. There are things that defy explanation. The things that we won't have great answers to. But nevertheless, we can get close to Hashem through the questions that we ask. Perik Yudzayim, Pasuk Yudches, moving along. King, page 1020. But when you come to the land that God gives us, when we conquer it, when we inhabit it, and we're going to want something. We're going to look around and we're going to say, wait, everybody else has a monarchy. Everybody else has royalty. Everyone else has a kingdom. We want to. We want a king. Hashem says, you know what? Fine. You can have one. 
you can appoint for yourself a king, it has to be from among, among your brothers, which eliminates, excludes a convert and others. Melech Malka, Sifri learns, Sarara, positions of authority and leadership, men, not women, why that is. And the king here is cautioned, and the king here is warned. Rak, lo yarbe lo susum le yashivis ha'amitzraima, laman arbo sus, vashem amar lachem lo sisfun, lasruv baderach ha'zeod. The king can't have too many horses, because then we'll turn to Egypt to go get horses for his collection. Vulo yarbe lo noshem, vulo yasur levavo, the king have to, can't have too many wives, he'll be distracted, it'll be difficult, too many credit card bills to pay. And he shouldn't pursue too much money. He shouldn't be consumed by materialism, the pursuit of materialism. The king has an obligation when he sits on his throne to write for himself two Sifrei Torah, two Torahs, two copies of the Torah. It must be with him all the time. He reads from it. In order that he will learn Laman Yilma, the Ibn Ezra, last week's parsha says, means he will become accustomed. He will train and condition himself to Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim, we have to become trained and conditioned to. Just an aside, the word Laman Yilmad. Yilmad, like Ish Milimuda. Ish Milimuda means, Mitzvah Sanashim Milimuda means habit, rote, pattern. Laman Tilmad means we should create positive habits. By the way, tonight, 8 o'clock, I'm speaking on the book Atomic Habits, a Torah take on the book Atomic Habits. So habits can be good or bad. The fact that we are pre-programmed in our day, we are creatures of habits, can be an asset or a liability. If we have poor habits, it's a horrific liability. If we have good habits, it's a fantastic asset. Atomic Habits, how do we form the best habits? So Laman Yilmad, Laman Tilmad, means to condition ourselves to habits, and the habits, not habits, habits, when we have good habits, they lead to what? We sometimes mistakenly think, this is a big insight of the Sefer HaChinach, we think, you know, when intellectually I'm there, then I will carry out and follow through. But it's the opposite. When you start carrying out and follow through, then you're going to feel a sense of Yerushalayim. Love is a verb, not an adjective. Love is a verb, not an adjective. Yerushalayim is a verb, Yerushalayim, fear and awe of Hashem is action. It's how we behave. And when we behave and act in that way, then we feel connected. The Yiddish expression, with the eating comes the appetite. Not hungry, I can't eat, I'm full, I'll never eat again. Let me just take a taste of that. Next thing you know, three main courses later, six side dishes and seven desserts. Mr. or Mrs. I'm not hungry. With the eating comes the appetite. After the actions, follow the heart. If we start to do, then we will behave. Dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. So many examples. So Laman Yilmad, the year is Hashem Lakav. The king has to write and carry and read and act and perform and behave and dress a certain way because when we do, it will condition ourselves to feel what we're meant to be able to feel as a result. Why is the king doing all of this? To make sure he doesn't become haughty. So he does not abandon God's mitzvahs right or left. He will live a long life on his throne. And his family among the Jewish people. So lots to say here. <clears throat> lots to say on this, on these psukim. Where should we start? Because of the Mishnah Torah, so he has to write the Torah. He reads it all of his life. It should say, He writes the Torah, he reads from it all of his life. And also, by the way, don't become haughty, don't become arrogant. Just because you're the king, just because you're the monarch, just because you're royalty, don't let it go to your head. It is a responsibility and a privilege, it's not a right. And therefore, don't let it go to your head. Where's the vav? It should say, Ulavilti, and don't become haughty. So there was a great tzaddik who lived in Yerushalayim, Rav Mordechai Tzukerman. He was a Talmud of Kelm. He knew the Chavetz Chaim. He was one of the last living Talmudim of the Chavetz Chaim. And uh, many years ago, 
15, 16 years ago, Yechavad and I took a teen mission to Israel, a group of teenagers, and we had the privilege of taking them to go meet Rav Zuckerman in Yerushalayim, and he told the stories of the Chavetz Chaim. So for these young people to hear directly from him, to sit in the presence of somebody who was a student of the Chavetz Chaim, it was amazing. So he asked this question in his Sefer, Lev Mordechai, why doesn't there, why isn't there a Vav? The king should have to write a Torah to learn from it, and don't become haughty. So he says the following, because there is a fear and an awe of a king on everybody else, because the king knows they're in a position of power, there's the enormous danger of it going to his head. These are not two separate statements. It's not king, you have a mitzvah to write a Torah. Oh, also, by the way, try not to let it go to your head, don't become haughty. This is a prescription. Do you know how you avoid becoming haughty and arrogant? By learning Torah. The reason the king need two Torahs is when you keep your nose in the book, when you study the Torah, when you continue to connect with it, that it will calibrate your compass. Then you will stay humble and modest. But if you ignore and neglect, if you stop reading and imbibing its messages, if you're not nourished by the Torah giving us a sense of context and truth, then you're an enormous risk. So for the king, there's the danger of arrogance. But for all of us, in our profession, in our personality, in our private lives, we, have, we all have struggles. Some struggle with envy, some struggle with temptation, some struggle with anger, some struggle with jealousy. We all have challenges. What's the antidote? What's the answer? Like the king, keep your nose in the book. Every day you have to study Torah. Torah humbles. Why? Why does Torah humble? Why does Torah effectively work in that way? Because Torah is the diary of Hashem. Torah reminds us that we're not all and be all. We're not in charge, we're not in control. Torah intellectually causes us to surrender to Him. Torah helps us see us ourselves in a context of a much bigger world around us. Torah enables us and enriches us and empowers us and challenges us to feel that we're here not to take but to give. That we don't have rights and entitlements, we have duties and obligations. That we have a mission in this world. And when we engage in Torah, and we remember that we have a mission and a responsibility in this world, psst, then we're going to be able to overcome whatever it is, those obstacles in our life. And then, then we read it all the days of our lives. So the same way, it's not a vav, it's not two separate things. Write a Torah and learn it. Oh, also, by the way, don't be arrogant. It's connected. The way to avoid being arrogant is to read it, every day of your life. Read it every day of your life. The higher a position you are in life, whatever position of power you're in, of office you're in, the more responsible you are to set aside time every day to study. People mistakenly think the less time that you have, the less time that you have, but the more important it is. The king, who had more pressure on their time, on their schedule than the king? But yet, the he had to read it every day. Because the more position of power you're in, the more vulnerable you are, the more susceptible you are, the more that you think you're above the rules and above the law, the more danger you're in to become corrupt. If power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. How do you avoid that? The Torah here gave a prescription. Not only for the king, but for all who are like the king. And what is that prescription? Read Torah, learn Torah every single day. Every single day, call it to you who are here, live and in person, back in the Rand Sanctuary, with coffee and, are they granola bars today? And even granola bars, no granola bars, we'll have to bring them back. But you are learning Torah every day, multiple times a day. It grounds us, it informs us, it challenges us, but it enables us not to be as vulnerable to those issues. So you'll say, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a king, I'm not a queen. So first of all, we all are, we all are. We were online in the airport, coming back from our family trip, and they announced, you know, uh, first class can board, and business class can board, and medallion members can board, and extra legroom platinum preferred can board.
So uh, one of my young daughters uh, said, why aren't we boarding? I said, sweetie, we're nothing. We sit in the back of the plane. We sit among the peasants. We're the simple people. We're the simple folk. So she paused. I love Tamima. Then she said, Abba, we're not peasants or poor people. We're princes and princesses because we're children of Hashem. I said, oh, every dollar of tuition paying off. That's why we couldn't sit, by the way, in the business class, in the first class, and wherever else, because all those dollars of tuition. But what, right? What a great line from the mouth of children. I loved it. I loved it. She says, we're not peasants or poor people. But the princes and princesses were children of Hashem. Says Rab Nachman of Breslov. Says Rab Nachman. At the beginning of the parsha, it says you have to appoint judges and police people. And the continuation it tells us about a king. And the Mephorshim wonder. And there's a big debate. Is there a mitzvah to appoint a king? Or is it that if you crave a king, here's the proper way how? Do we have a proactive obligation? Or no, if we crave it, here's how, here's how. The same way that the message for judges and police people is talking to each and every one of us, similarly, the prescription and the obligation for the king is similarly talking to each and every one of us. So writes Rab Nachman, for every member of the Jewish people, for every one of us, we have a status of Malchus. What is a Melech? A Melech is the ultimate authority. A Melech is the highest level of power. Every one of us are a Melech or Malka. It's different for each of us. Some people are only in charge of their home, themselves. They pay their bills, they make the rules. They're in charge of their home. Some are in charge of other people. They're in a position of management. They're a director, they're an administrator. Somebody is a mayor, an elected official. Somebody is a, a governor. Just like we had hierarchy and a structure of leadership in the Jewish people. We're all in positions of influence. Some influence and are in charge only of themselves, some of their family, some of their community, some of their business, some of the local part, some of state, some of national, international, and so on. You could have implicit and explicit malchus. He goes on. But listen to what Rav Nachman says. Or based on the teaching. We have to realize that power, with power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. So Melech and Malka are not just, you get to fly first class. They're not just you get to sit in the throne. They're not just you're in charge and you're in control of others. There's awesome responsibility. And you have to use it for the good, not the bad. It can't be for personal pleasure. And now let's look at the Pasuk in this context, says Reb Nachman. Place upon yourself a king. On others around you. With Achva and Kirva. Don't be a person of power, of authority, of control. Do it with camaraderie and companionship and love and empathy. Don't use your power and your control to become a stranger, to think you're different or above others. Don't think that you're not a brother, that you're somehow above. So Rabbi Nachman reads into it for each and every one of us. Anyone who is in whatever position of power at whatever level, who sees themselves as a Melech and a Malka, see that only for the good, like my daughter online at the airport, 
not in a way that God forbid corrupts or that God forbid brings us down. That's from Nachman and the Lev Mordechai. The Megid Yosef of Sorotskin points out, Torah cautions the king from three things. Lo yarbe lo susim, not too many horses, which today, Today, people in great positions of power or of great wealth, they're not at risk of amassing too many horses. What are they at risk of? Too much horsepower. Not horses, but horsepower. They want many cars, and the strongest cars, and the horsepower, which is a fascinating thing because no matter what horsepower your car has, you're still bound by the same speed limit. So what motivates the greater horsepower? The more horsepower, the more cars. So, lo yarbalo susim, lo yarbalo nashem, kesev zahav lo yarbalo ma'od. The third one is stated differently. Lo yarbalo susim, don't accumulate, don't have too many horses, don't have too many women or wives, and money, silver and gold should not accumulate by him much. It's formulated differently. Says the Megid Yosef. Three things. Horses, women, and money. Two of them, we have a reason. What's the reason? Where do they raise horses? Where do they breed horses? Egypt. We are warned in three places in the Torah we're not supposed to return to Egypt. If the king is consumed by accumulating the greatest horse collection in the world, where are they going to go? Egypt. Torah gives us the reason. B'nashem, not have too many wives, why? Lo yasur levavo. This is not biased or whatever to women, but if he has too many wives, and he's so in love with all of them, and he's overcome by romance and love and care and support, he's going to be distracted. He's got to be a king. We just spoke about a king is not only about privilege, it's about responsibility. King is responsible for the welfare, safety, the security, the well-being, the governance of the people. Lo yasur levavo, he can't be distracted. The, you know how many anniversaries he's going to have to mark? <laughs> Flowers he's got to buy and deliver, chocolates. Often he's going to be apologized. He doesn't have time for all that. <laughs> but the money, there's no reason given. So Torah is calling and begging us, pursue, try to understand. Says Rav Sarotskin, you know where the answer can be found? There's a hint. There's a clue in the Pasuk. It doesn't give us a reason, but it does use one extra word. And maybe that one extra word is a clue. And what's the extra word the Torah says? When it comes to horses, lo yarbe. When it comes to wives, lo yarbe. When it comes to money, lo yarbe lo ma'od. How is that a clue? How is that a hint? Chazal tells us in Kuala's Rabbah, Mishyesh lo mana rotsa masayim. If you have a hundred, you want two hundred. Yeshlo Masayim, Rotadalad Meos. You have two hundred, you want four hundred. Rarely do you ever meet a person who says, I'm good. I'm done. I have enough. No matter how much you have, you want more. You make your first thousand, you want the first million. The first million, you want to be in the billionaire club. You're in the billionaire club, you want to be in the multi billionaire club. You want to. You made it on the Forbes 400, you want to be in 100. 100, you want to make to number five, you want to make to number one. It's built into the human psyche to crave, to want more and more. Having money actually causes you to want more money. Who knew and who struggled in this area. If you love kesef, the more you love it, the less satisfied you can ever get with it you'll ever become from it. The more you love money, no matter how much you have, you crave and want more. You're never done. If you want enough to live, if you want enough to live comfortably, beautiful, enjoy. Have ambition, have drive. Those are wonderful qualities. And enjoy the best and the beautiful of what Hashem has to offer. There's nothing wrong with that. But the more that you define and confuse your identity and the pursuit of money, who you are, the more that there's ma'od, you just want more, you can't be satisfied, the more it's ma'od, then it's all you'll think about, you'll be consumed by it. 
Because then it's going to corrupt your thinking and you won't be able to, you won't be able to lead in the most prudent way. If you look at the Targum Yonas in the translation of this Pasuk, it says, Don't have a lot of gold, so that you don't raise your heart, and you'll rebel against Hashem. If you have a ma'od, an insatiable appetite for materialism and money, then you can't be close to Hashem. The insatiable appetite, Chazal Darshan, if you love money, you'll never have enough money. Chazal Darshan, Oev Torah, Liyizba Torah. Meaning, all of us have drive. We have temptation. We have appetite, sometimes insatiable. The question is, how do we channel it and how do we direct it? If it's for cars or money, we'll never have enough. But it could be for Rashi and Tosfos. It could be for Torah. And if we do it for Torah, psh, now we've channeled it for the best in the most beautiful way. Good. We just read. And what happens? The king, at the danger of, the danger of what? The danger of becoming arrogant. And what else is he in danger of? If the king has too many horses, too many wives, too much money, then he will become arrogant, an inflated ego, and he will abandon Torah, he'll turn away from Torah, yamin is small, right or left. And that's a bad thing. And that's a bad thing. And that's a bad thing. The Ololos Ephraim, the Ololos Ephraim, Ephraim Zama Margolios, says the following. Why right and left? What is the allusion to right or left? First of all, the king, I'll tell you my, right and left we use in our vernacular. The right wing and the left wing of religion, the right wing and the left wing of politics. Don't be guided by left or right. Don't be guided by conservative or liberal politics. What should you be guided by? Truth. That took a little too long. Truth. Truth. Hashem. Be guided by Hashem's truth, by the divine wisdom. So don't, don't be partisan. Don't be predictable. If you're in a position of power, you're a melech or a malka, levilti surman ha mitzvah yamin usmol. Don't try to make the mitzvah fit into your paradigm or your politics, right or left. Right or left. You're an elected official, you're in a position of power. Don't make legislation fit into your politics, right or left. Pursue what's moral, what's just, what's true. What's true? Yamin usmol. But the Ololos Ephraim says something else. Gemara Baba Basra Daf Samachay tells us, Harotza Sheyachkim Yadrim, Sheyasir Yashir Yatspin. If you want to become wise, turn south. If you want to become wealthy, turn north. Where did the Gemara get that from? The Mishkan, the Besamikdash. What was in the south? The menorah. Menorah was the source of wisdom. What was in the north? The Shulchan, the source of the bread, showbread, which was wealth. So to the south is where wisdom can be found. To the north is where wealth can, can be found. We've now put out four volumes of our Beis Medrash. The Bokertan Synagogue Beis Medrash has a Torah volume. We've put out four volumes. What's the name of our, of our Torah journal? Yadrim. Why is it called Yadrim? Because of this Gemara. Harot Lahachim. Yadrim. If you want to become wise, Yadrim. Darom is the south. Yadrim. Turn towards the south. I wrote an introduction to all four. It's getting increasingly difficult. But in each of the introductions, I quoted a different pshat, a different understanding or interpretation of what does that mean, turn to the south for wisdom, turns the, towards the north. Some say it means halachically when you daven. We think that you turn to the east or wherever you are in the world, you turn towards Eretz Yisrael. And there is truth to that. Gemara records that. Shulchan records that. However, post say, for example, we should really be facing southeast, east towards Israel, but to the south also, because I wrote to So some say the Gemara is talking about which direction you face when you daven. Others say it's talking about other qualities and other things. But this is Harutz Lahachim. Yadrim. You gotta move to South Florida if you want wisdom. That's where it's found. It's quoted. That's why in a shul, if you look behind me in our shul too, 
the rabbi sits to the left of the Aron, and the shul president sits to the right. Why? Because when the rabbi is sitting to the left of the Aron, when you're davening, you're going to face the Aron, so you're facing where? Southeast. You're looking, the Rav is looking for wisdom as they face east. The president who is responsible for the finances of the shul faces the Aron. Where are they facing? Northeast. <laughs> the Rav faces the south. So the president faces the, faces the north. Fine. That's why we started a new yeshiva. Baruch Hashem started yesterday. Yeshiva South Florida. Flourishing, thriving, fantastic. We're so super excited. We should have called the whole yeshiva Yadrim. But uh, Yadrim, you come to the south. Why am I telling you all this? What does that have to do with our parsha? Says the Olos Ephraim, Hisiraso HaTorah, Shlo Yischavin Ba'asiyaz Mitzvah Lasur Yamin Usmol. When the king does mitzvos, it shouldn't be for the ulterior motive of either wisdom or wealth. Don't turn yamin is small, don't turn right or left means don't be doing it for wisdom or wealth. Do it lishma, do it for Hashem. That's the illusion of yamin u small. Great, let's keep going. Have time for one or two more. What should we do? Which one should we do? Mm. Let's do a Rabender, because I like Rabbi Bender. Rabender is a beautiful insight. We have the uh, cities of refuge in our parsha. A person who kills accidentally, and they run to a city of refuge. If he expands your borders, and somebody dies, and you set up Ari Miklat, and a person kills accidentally, they run there. And Rashi says, Tachin You prepare for yourself the way. Prepare for yourself the way. Rashi says, Miklat, Miklat. They had signs at the crossroads. They had billboards and street signs and highway signs that said, this is the way to the ear Miklat. Road signs to make it clear. Mesechas Bikurim were told that the masses heading to Yerushalayim, and they made their way up with pomp and circumstance and singing and dancing, Others would join them. And those who were on their way to bring the first fruit for the Bikurim would sleep in city squares as they went up. And they would wake up with the cry of, Kumu v'na'la Tzion. Nu, let's get up. Come. Who's coming? We're going to Tzion. We're going to the Beis HaMikdash. The great Mashkech of the Mir of Yerucham points out, now we appreciate the reason for this precise, clear signage. Torah did not want them to have to ask for directions. When it came to Bikurim, there were no signs because you'd announce where you're going and you'd create a sense of an environment of enthusiasm, of energy, and you'd get other people to come with you. There were no signs, specifically so that people would have to ask and then they would encourage others. Ali Larego, there were no signs, so that people would ask and then you'd encourage and you'd have a whole entourage and you'd go together. But when it came to Ir Miklat, there were clear and precise signs. Why? Said Rabbi Yerucham, you know why? The Torah did not want these people to engage with others on their way to the Ir Miklat. Why not? So the simple reason is to save them from embarrassment or shame. They killed by accident. It's embarrassing. They have to leave their family, go to near Mikla. It's embarrassing. To save them from that embarrassment, there were clear and precise signs. But Rav Yerucham says something different. He says because conversation itself creates culture, creates a reality. Did you hear this person has to go to the Mikla? He killed someone. It would create a, bl- a buzz around bloodshed. The commotion created by travelers causing the existence of the Ari Miklat and the reason for their existence would become part of the public discussion. Torah doesn't want that. We don't want people exposed to Ra in any manner. Even the word Shvicha is dumb. We don't want that to be the conversation at the Shabbos table. We don't want that to be the buzz. We don't want that to be what people are schmoozing about at the water cooler. Mashkiach is showing us in this Pasuk, but we see it in every day. When a child sees, what a child sees has an effect positive and opposite. It's important to bring your children to see Gedolei Torah, to fill your homes with books and pictures of Tamidei Chacham and Tzadikim, to spend time in great yeshivas. Just like those who pass through a perfumery come out with the fragrance on their clothing, so too there's a scent to a makam kadosh, and it leaves a lingering aroma. And the opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. And here he tells the whole story with the Chavetz Chaim, which we don't have time for. But the opposite is also true. So Rav Yerucham points out from the signage itself, the Chazal, Torah itself, is trying, to, is trying to control the conversation. Because what we talk about creates the culture, and the culture we live in creates the reality that we have. So we have to be very vigilant, we have to be very careful. But I'll close with one last thought. 
from the Darchi Musr, who says, tells us that when the individual killed by accident goes to an ear miklat, who goes with him? His Rebbe. Because the Basak says, he goes to one of these cities, so that he can live. So that he can live. And if the Rebbe has to go to an ear miklat, who goes with him? Whole Tamidim, his whole yeshiva. Peleplos. Mind-boggling. Because somebody in the Chabura killed by accident, the Rebbe goes, and with the Rebbe, the whole yeshiva goes. Mind-boggling. Their whole lives are disrupted. How could it be? Torah says, V'chai. Because you have to support the person in the ear miklat. How do you support them? With what? Food and water, shelter. Maybe internet connection. But how do you really support them is with access to Torah learning. A person who's cut off from Torah learning is dead. We saw that coming full circle to the Rav Zuckerman. The king has to learn every day to be grounded because without being grounded in Torah learning every day, psst, we're done, we're lost, we're finished. So the individual who is Megala, the individual who is exiled, brings the yeshiva with him. Brings the yeshiva with him. The Gemara is telling us something absolutely so incredible, so incredible. So the Rambam writes in Hechos Rotzeach, the life of a mavakesh without access to Torah, it's not a life. It's like one's dead. It's like you're dead. And that's why the Rebbe, and that's why the whole yeshiva go, in order to sustain and in order to give life. They inconvenience and disrupt themselves because we have to provide life for the person who is there and do all we can to sustain them and to be able to take care of them. And you see the centrality of Torah learning. You see the critical importance to be able to live our best selves, to be able to actually be alive. Without Torah, we're wandering dead. And with nourished by Torah, we are alive. That's the role of Torah in our lives. It's great to be back tonight, eight o'clock. Torah take on atomic habits tomorrow morning. Speaking of habits, 10 minutes of Mesil Sasharam, followed by Living with Amuna is back. So we have three weeks of stories to tell. Amunah stories, Living with Amunah is back. And tomorrow night behind the bima, and so on and so forth. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.